back to range anxiety that was my good friend or actually no but i know he is gary newman with the wonderful track cars because we're talking about cars today as we always do on range anxiety i'm driving home after a hot day in the tesla model 3 sr plus and it's looking after me with the air conditioning running this is the quiet one and i'm glad it's quiet because i'm a bit frazzled today today we hit 100f in South Australia in my workplace for the first time this and it's not even summer spring leading up to summer and yeah she's gonna be a, a hot old session this one and it's gonna be a bit tough I hope you enjoyed um, last epicast with Julian and Nick they were going at it head-to-head that -head. we were in a pub we we're at a bar you know so the boys could have a few beers as they were telling each other how big their fish really weren't that they never caught but yeah people loved the banter and it was great we included some other poor innocent souls that weren't even there so what's news today well this epicast is about track days my least favorite thing in the whole wide world but before we go there i had the best candy store you could ever imagine guy in today the poor guy he had bought a car from interstate and he'd come with it he'd just finished all of his covid restrictions uh, for quarantining between states and he came to see me because he heard we knew a little bit about this particular brand of car and we do i've been involved with them for a long long time and been part of some record holding drag assaults back in the day we we're in the eights and the nines and the tens with these things before most people even knew what the hell they were. So this guy brought this uh, thing into me. I'm not even gonna say what it was to protect the innocent. And he had just been to his engine builder slash workshop interstate. I'm not gonna say which state it was out of either um, to protect the guilty. And he'd spent, he looked me in the eye and he told me he'd spent $160,000 on the engine. That's right, 160000 Aussie. That's about 120 US, which will buy you something pretty nice normally. And this thing wasn't that nice. I mean, it was okay. It was a built engine, piston, rods, you know, decent block in one block, if that gives it away. And it had like some big powder-coated black T51R on it. And it had what the owner described as a Lincoln ECU on it. Let's just say it was a plug and play programmable thing, which isn't bad. And he had kind of stuffed it up and had a run in with, with his engine builder because he'd put a clear cover on it. And when he'd put a clear cover over the cam belt, he had uh, not set the timing correctly. Now this guy drives fairly gently, so he wasn't gonna blow it up, but apparently it was 10 degrees or so out and uh, you know, he took it back to his engine builder to be checked and he said, well, you've just blown the engine. He didn't think he'd blown the engine, but they did change the oil for him and they showed him the oil was all white and milky. That must be coolant. Well, no, it's actually E85. This is quite common when you've got a built thing with big, nasty piston to bore clearances or even just even factory motors do it to tell you the truth, factory Subarus anyway. You know, they'll turn the oil into a bit of a milkshakey mess and, oh, well, that's what happens. you just got to change your oil regularly if you're going to run E85 on the street, which I never really recommend. I mean, I used to when I was younger and a bit more stupid, but for the amount of issues that it causes, 
and the amount of range anxiety that you get when you're using it, it's barely worth it. Well, I had listened to this thing, and to my trained ear, it was fine. It just sounded like a typically typical rattly gearbox, piston and rod, grumbly, cammed example of the breed. It sounded fine, but no, he's told he'd heard it because he, he had a E85 loosely disguised as coolant in the oil. And I said, mate, sounds all right to me. I said, let's see a dyno sheet from the thing that your interstate workshop did. Oh, it makes 800, you know, in street form, but, you know, for the track, it makes 1,200 horsepower at the tyres. I'm like, just, shit, that's not bad. Out of quite a small capacity engine. Wow, you know, awesome work. Let's have a look at the dyno sheet. Oh, I don't have one. So what do you mean? Oh, they never gave me a dyno sheet when they tuned it. I'm like, what? So I gradually had to, you know, hold him by the hand and say, with this turbo size, with the boost you're running, it's gonna make about 600 with wind up its bum. Maybe we can squeeze it to seven at full tilt, but it's not going to be 1200 horsepower at the wheels in any man or woman's dream. And the guy looked at me disappointed, you know, and they all do. You see, this guy had been honey-dicked and candy-shopped that hard that as he was walking, he was whistling like a kettle. He had been reamed that hard. And, you know, our job now is to help him. So how do you help someone like this? Well, you start, I said, it's like painting a picture. You're going to start again. So what we'll do is we'll put the car on the dyno in front of you and we'll run it as it is. There is your baseline. And from there, we can determine whether it is hurt or not and, you know, how much power it does or doesn't make. You see, he was told in the state that the only way to fix this 2.6 was to go to a full-built 2.8 with bigger cams. Yeah, that'll normally do it. It'll also normally relieve you of, you know, 40 to 60 grand as well. He don't want to do that. He's just started a family and good on him. So let's just see where, where it is. And in the meantime, I'm going to give him a little surprise treat, like a little like a little Valentine's Day gift, because it, it had one of those adapters on the front of the turbocharger that splits the inlets into a pair of like little filters and the pod filters that were on it, you know, it's like a two into one sort of Y-piece joiner on a 90 degree angle kind of thing. The Japanese used to love that kind of approach, and yeah, it works all right. At least it doesn't pick up air directly off the radiator that way. So it's a special treat because the air filters that are on it look like they'd been a chew toy for a pit bull. I'm going to buy him, and apparently that's how he said he got the car after his big build. Righto. They were out of the shit shop, not the candy shop. Um, I bought him a couple of new filters. I've got some plugs on standby. We'll give it a, a quick compression test before we do anything. And we'll paint a picture and from there we'll come up with a procedure that needs fixing or that we should go through to fix the car so that that's my little today's experience you know i have these kind of things every day but this this one sort of sticks in my craw a bit because i think wow why can't i get away with that you know actually you don't you know charging all this money and not delivering a result it's 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 shit. and what it does is it knocks a stuffing out of these guys and girls in the scene so they don't go to anyone else in the end either normally and they're just lost to the scene forever which is a shame because done right cars can 
be enjoyable. That's right, from the person that dislikes working around them as much as me, they can be enjoyable. So what do I dislike more than that kind of caper? I know, track days. Now don't get me wrong, I like going out and driving and I've done a lot of it over the years in race cars and road cars and whatever. I like going out and driving on a racetrack as much as the next person. Yeah, really enjoy it sometimes. It's fine, but I kind of know what do we expect. You know, I've been around it for a long time as a professional, preparing track day cars and also my own and driving them. I know what to expect and I know how to go about it. And I know, you know, it's a bit like Kenny Rogers and the Gambler. You're gonna know when to fold and you're gonna know when to hold and you're gonna know when enough's enough and you're gonna know when to come in. What I don't like is having to prepare and support cars at track days for people that have unrealistic expectations. And that is most of them. If you work around me long enough and you've been doing track days with me long enough, you'll either A, learn or B, go somewhere else and you will learn very quickly. Because the bottom line is, road cars do not like race tracks. No, road cars were meant for roads and race cars were meant for race tracks. Go Bigger. Yep, always been the way, always will be the way, be the way. And the tougher the racetrack, the more you need to detune and set your road car up for it. Now, the very best car to take to a track day is a totally stock one. Yep, the newer and stocker the car is that you take to a track day, the more laps you'll get before it evaporates, either itself or one of its components. Yes, yes you do see, and I have seen a lot of cars literally explode and even burn to the ground at track days. Yeah, bad news. So, the stocker the car is, the better it is, the more high-end it is, the more expensive it is, the better it is. Why is that? Well, for a start, the newer something is, the more chance you've got of doing some more reciprocating cycles before you run into problems. And secondly, the stocker it is, the more likely that it doesn't have race tyres on it, that it won't be able to generate the sort of loads laterally that starve the engine of oil and longitudinally that overcook the brakes. All road cars eventually, and I don't care what they are, if you drive them hard enough and you're a good enough driver, unless it's the most extreme of vehicles, the factory brakes will not be up to it. You will run out of brakes. It depends a lot on the track. Our local, our closest local track to where I'm based is Malalar, which has been around for years. The coat hanger, as it's called, and it's three sets of 100 mile per hour plus stop go straights with barely a sweeper and barely anything in between. It's not a very technical track. The people that tell you it's super technical have essentially got no idea. Um, it's all about getting into the corner as deep as you can, collecting the car up through the corner, maximising the drive off the corner for the best shoot speed down the next straight and then being able to stand on the brakes. And there's no recovery time because the lap's a pretty short, shitty lap. 
there's no recovery time so I'm pretty good at being able to turn most normal you know a hundred or sub two hundred thousand dollar cars I can turn their brakes into fireballs where the pedal goes to the floor within about three or four laps yeah so brakes do need a lot of attention there and a couple of the corners there if you've got too much grip you will starve the engine of oil there was turn two at Malala that was known as LS corner because in the early model VT and VX Commodores with their sort of um, road car design pickup you would generate you could even do it on road tires if you're good enough enough lateral G's there to simply starve the thing at full noise at zero oil pressure and after one or two laps of that at 6,000 RPM, yeah, you, the old death knock, rattle, 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 and bang, rot out the side. Yeah, there are other tracks, though, like the Bend Motorsport Park, our beautiful new world-leading facility. Guys, include me on your premium members list whenever you want. If I tell everyone, go to the Bend, it's the best. Um, that track's a bit gentler on the brakes, but it's harder on a motors because you've got a, you've got a straightaway that's 1.1 kilometres an hour long and you know where at Mount La you're getting into the top end of fourth before you're on the picks at the bend you're getting right into the meet of fifth and you're going normally 40 to 50 or 60 k's an hour faster and that will expose, there's nothing wrong with the track, that will expose weaknesses in a poorly tuned, poorly built or generally worn out engine. So I always tell people, even as a professional tuner, keep your car stocked when you go to the track. And even the Model 3 is agreeing with me because it's just going on to autopilot and showing me how slowly it can possibly drive itself around a track. That's no good for an epicast like this. So, let's just say you can't help yourself or you've got a super expensive car, like you can get a GT3 out there and you can run laps pretty much all day or to the limit of the tyres and you know there are some hypercars, supercars that will do it. You can get an Audi R8 V10 out there and run laps at the bend, we know this, pretty much all day if you want to, providing you drive sensibly. But here's the problem, right? The weakness doesn't lay with the cars, it lays between the ears of the people driving them at these track days because they don't know when enough is enough. They don't understand cooling down, they don't understand cycling things, they don't understand the cool down lap, and they just don't understand the general concepts of mechanical sympathy like I do. Because I can see the thing having to be pushed back into the workshop, you know, and then they say, oh, but you said my car would be all right for a track day, and can you put it ahead of your other customers? And I really don't want to pay full rate because, you know, it, I was at the track day and you said it was, no, don't go to bloody track days. My business partners I'm with now, they're well trained. They take everything out to track days, but they normally take good stuff and they've learnt the lesson. So what is the lesson? And they've learnt it by listening. The lesson is this, do one or two warm-up laps to get into the swing of things. Don't go flat out. And then set yourself a target and go, say, at Malala, flat out for two or three. At the bend, which is a much longer track, flat out for two. And then, I mean, you're not, you're not racing, you're enjoying. And then let the car recover. Keep an eye on the gauges. And most importantly, understand what the gauges do. 
when something's flashing on the dash. Don't come back into me and say there was this light in the corner and it was flashing, so I didn't know what to do because I've never seen it before on the road. So I, I kept going as fast as I can and, and then smoke started coming out. Don't even begin to give me that shit because I'll just charge you double because you haven't, I, as I've said previously, read the manual and understood the function of the car, but you haven't listened to the car. You've got to listen to the car when the car is screaming at you and they will. They start to make odd smells. They start to make odd noises. They start to shudder and understeer across corners as the tires go. No, 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 no. And then when all that's happened and you've overcooked it, the beginner thinks, I've just done something really, really wrong and bad to this car. So I'll head straight for the pits and bring it in there red hot without a proper brake cool down and park it. You'd be surprised how many people do that. And you can hear the thing clicking and clacking and the thermal expansion and steaming and smoke pouring off the brakes. And, oh, God, please don't do it. It just about makes you cry for the car. Horrible. Um, there was one ning-nong on you and used to work around for a bit. And his favourite was, and he knew all of this, but he never listened because he knew everything. He was the guy we used to call postage stamp because what he didn't know, you could write on the back of one. So he would bring a car into the pits knowing that you just could not carry on with this sort of caper, that you had to give him a call down. And then he would whip the handbrake on straight away. That's right, so he came in with the brakes glowing red and smoking and then pulled the handbrake on. And this particular car used to have a drum you know, rear handbrake assembly, like a lot do on the rear discs, and then wondered why the thing was wobbling and shuddering, and uh, oh, oh. it was sort of like heat treating. It was just horrible. Everything, I tell people, you must, before you come in, if you know you've got a 10 minute session, get your two or three laps done in the middle, or a 15 minute session, and spend the last five or six minutes cooling down. I don't want to see you in the pits, right? I don't want to see you in the pits till your temperature gauge for the coolant is reading dead normal like it would on the road. And you got every chance to do it on the track. But also when you're doing that, when you're cooling down, use your bloody mirrors. So many people get excited and even people that should know better, right? People that are allegedly experienced and don't use their mirrors. And when you don't use your mirrors and you're cooling down and going slow is when you have big accidents. And we don't like big accidents because that takes the fun out of track days for everybody. So use your mirrors. And I always have a little game, right? When I'm cooling down to see how far and fast I can go in the tallest gear possible without touching the brake pedal. Now, if you're not touching the brake pedal, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting to use the gears to slow you down because that's never a good idea. It's, you know, brakes are cheaper than transmissions normally, particularly in the instance of an R35 GDR. Um, I always see how little I touch the brakes, and by doing that, I keep the engine unloaded and everything comes cool a lot, lot faster. And if you're, you're just dabbing or just brushing at the brakes slightly, it's 
you'll, you'll get them back to temperature much, much quicker. And you'll come in and they won't be heat stressed and cracked and phased and uh, all of those terrible things. In fact, there was a study done not so long ago. It was by one of my friends in the US who, who knows a bit about brakes. And he actually determined that you keep your brakes cooler by hard, short applications rather than by um, longer, lesser applications. So you're back in the pits. What do you do? You take, get out of the car, you're hot, you're sweaty, you take your helmet off, you put it down, and you're ready, you know, you get ready, you're thinking about going again. The first thing you gotta do, if your fuel level's low, keep your fuel level up on the racetrack. Be careful opening that fuel cap. Pressurized systems with heat, out the top, fuel can spray over our bank, you can start a fire. Let the car sit with the bonnet up, maybe the doors open if you're inside and the boot open. Let the car sit, and if, if you can park it in the shade outside where there's a breeze, let it sit for half an hour. I know you're wasting time, but the car needs a break as much as you do before you go out. And if you've got one of those portable little barrel fans that you can buy, and you've got access to a PowerPoint, stuff the thing in front of the car's front air in let leave the fan on it for half an hour. Don't go putting it on the brakes, let them cool naturally. And because you only got one fan and you got four brakes, you'll cool one more than the other. It's just stupid, don't worry about it. Just cool the engine down, cool yourself down, and when you're nice and cool again and you've stopped sweating, the car will have stopped sweating, and ta-da, you can go back out for a run. This is one thing, and you know I'm never going to get through an episode without talking about a Tesla, but this is one thing I like about um, track mode on the Model 3 Performance is that you can overclock the cooling system, and when you're sitting there in the pits, you can run all of the coolant pumps, and you can have the car cooling flat out in the pits, so that you don't have any of these problems or, or the car will cool much faster. Isn't it a good idea? Wouldn't it be good if conventional ice cars could have like a track mode that would cool in the pits? But they don't really, right? And why don't they? Because they only run pathetic little batteries that had run flat, you know, after a couple of minutes of all the fans and cooling pumps and everything running. Yeah, that's why they don't do it and that's why Tesla do do it. Smart idea and more credit for those guys the Fremont factory for drawing this up and thinking it out. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed this Epicast because I've had a lot of feedback. People love the fun, they love the banter, and they, you know, a lot of people say, I love it when you crack the shits, Martin, and I love it when you're grumpy, and other people say, I don't like it when you're so grumpy because the feedback is so balanced and varied in its nature, actually, that I've just decided I don't care what you say. I'm just going to do my own thing. How does that sound? But still, it's not going to continue and it's not going to keep going unless I do keep getting feedback. I watch the numbers pretty carefully on the Anchor platform. And yeah, we've got heaps of reach, particularly in the US. I think they love the, you know, Aussie kind of gangster way of, of tuning cars, even though they, they seem to be the biggest gangsters of all when it comes to tuning cars. But yeah, we're pretty OG, particularly with the Japanese stuff, particularly with the GDRs, because they never had them stateside. Um, we're just a bit softer with Supras, but who cares? Supras were weaker than GDRs in all aspects and still are today. Boom, take that, Toyota lovers. Um, 
But yeah, please make sure you send me feedback to dtech at senet.com.au. That's D-T-E-C-H at senet.com.au. Send me your thoughts. Send me uh, Epicast ideas. I mean, I've got them planned three or four ahead anyway, and I'm going to be doing another one before the weekend for your enjoyment. And thank you once again for listening to Range Anxiety.